Uh, I'm reading from the ESV. John 5, uh, verse 1 to 17, uh, starting from verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to, him, to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son, the, the son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show to him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in, to in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, 
and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Thank you for those readings. Thank you very much. Okay, cool. Uh, so for our final talk in John, we have uh, another separate outline tonight, labelled just like the others. Do take that out. More importantly, do have your Bibles open at John 5. And let's pray. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And so, Father, we pray now that as we consider the words of your Son, we would receive them with faith, that indeed we might be those who show ourselves to be in your Son, and so have life. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Can you recall a time when you were truly desperate? Can you recall a time when you were truly desperate? Things seemed to just be going fine, and then suddenly, and then rather rapidly, your situation just went from bad to much, much worse. When I first uh, returned to Malaysia, uh, back from London uh, with my wife in 2010, before I kind of went straight back into full-time pastoral ministry, we thought it would be wise before starting uh, that journey to take another journey, a short little break to a beautiful island that I trust some of us have been to, just off the east coast of Trunganu, Redung. Hand up if you've been to Redung before. Oh, okay, not that many. All right. Uh, you guys should go. It's, it's brilliant. We had a really refreshing uh, break there uh, just before I was getting stuck into ministry in KL. Uh, but on the long coach journey back home, it's a long journey down the coast back to KL, about halfway down, a good three hours or so into the journey, I, I felt an intense pain in my lower uh, right kind of back. Uh, now, we had just stopped at, at one of those rest areas, and I had uh, rather precariously just consumed a Ramley burger. And so I thought, well, you know, it's probably just bad food, no problem. Uh, and I got home, and I went to bed, and I woke up the following morning in a lot more pain. My, my back on the right-hand side was really aching now. I had developed a fever. Uh, my bones were sore. And again, I didn't take it that seriously. I thought, oh, it's probably just a nasty case of man flu. A day's rest on the couch, watching Astro, I'll be fine. Uh, 
Well, the pain and the fever steadily got worse and worse over the next few days until uh, I started to experience what I've been told were rigo shivers, where basically your body can't stop shaking. It's a sign you're going into septic shock. And with that, I was rushed to uh, the local hospital in KL, and they did some very important tests. And the tests came back, and I was informed by the doctor, uh, basically, Tim, you've got a massive stone in your right kidney, and it's been blocking it for about a week. So I had a seriously bad infection. My kidney was dying, and if I hadn't been rushed to hospital by my family, I would have died as well. My situation was far more desperate than I was willing to recognize at first. I thought I could just sleep off my illness, and a week later I was in a hospital taking life-saving drugs. And as we come to John 5 this evening, we see Jesus meeting the desperate. He's going to meet a man in an obviously desperate situation. But as we'll see later in these verses, this encounter with this desperate man goes on to reveal a far more serious desperation that we all, our world, shares but yet tragically so many refuse to see and to take seriously. We'll start with a desperate scene in chapter 5 and verse 1. Read with me. Chapter 5 verse 1. And John begins by telling us, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he starts by telling us that Jesus has traveled once again up to Jerusalem as was the Jewish tradition when there was a religious feast day. And and we're not told here, unlike in other places, what feast Jesus is actually traveling to. John doesn't seem to think that's very important for us to understand here. But he does want us to be clear that Jesus is back in Jerusalem. And given what we've seen already, just in our brief survey of John so far, uh, the fact that he is back in Jerusalem, in Judea, well, we should feel a bit of tension here. Remember, he left Judea at the beginning of the last chapter we saw yesterday at chapter 4, because the Pharisees, the Jewish rulers and leaders, were getting jealous of him and all of those previous followers that used to belong to them coming across to to him and now he's back in their city. This is enemy HQ and it won't be long before Jesus comes face to face with his antagonists once again but first we are told about a very different group of residents in Jerusalem and they are in a very desperate situation indeed. See in verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So John points his first readers to a place in Jerusalem that they would have actually known quite well. And our archaeologists today think they might have actually unearthed the remains of the place that John identifies here, this enclosed pool of water. It was at the northern end of the temple complex, as we're told, just past the Sheep Gate. And this is what it may well have looked like, a model. It's not the real thing. Their cameras weren't that good back in the first century. But here's a model of 
uh, of these roofed colonnades that uh, uh, John speaks of here. And basically, under these roofed walkways around these pools, one of which was the Pool of Bethesda, well, you would find in Jerusalem beggars central. Okay, you'd, it's a bit like, if you know KL, Masjid Jamek, the LRT there, and go there in daylight hours on a normal working day, and what do you see on the steps around the station? You see the lame. You see the disabled, the invalids, coming and begging for alms. And that is very much the kind of atmosphere that would have been here in the city of Jerusalem, in this place at the pool of Bethesda, literally the house of divine mercy. It was a desperate sight, these invalids sitting and just lying across the pavements, having to step over and around them. These people who were so dependent that others would have actually had to bring them here, that they might beg for the means to live. And they wanted to be brought here to this spot because it had something of a special reputation. Have a look in your Bibles. I'm going to put it up here in in a minute as well. But look down and see if you have a footnote after verse 3. It's footnote 5 in the ESV. At the bottom of the page, and your Bibles might say something along these lines. See, we're told that some manuscripts, some copies of John's Gospel, uh, insert these words straight after verse 3. I'm just going to read them. So if we were to read straight after verse 3 and then include what's in the footnote, we'd read the blind, paralyzed, and lame waiting for the moving of the water for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. What Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of what disease he had. Now I need to be clear, this is not part of John's gospel. This is not part of God's inspired word through John. Uh, the earliest manuscripts, the earliest copies of John's gospel that we have that we know to be authentic do not include this sentence. It was a later edition added by someone after John had finished his gospel. But I think the reason why they added it and the reason why in certain translations we've been given it in the footnote is because it's actually helpful to know that this was a popular superstition in Jesus' day. So popular that someone actually added it later. Desperate invalids would be brought into this pool because of this fanciful rumor that an angel would occasionally come down, stir the waters in the pool, and it was supposedly said that the first invalid who was helped into the water, they would be instantaneously healed. And knowing about this fanciful rumor, well, that's going to help us understand something about Jesus' encounter with this desperate man as we meet him now. A desperate man. Verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now this guy is in bad shape. Uh, Not only does John refer to him, he uses the word for invalid, which was a, a general word for someone with a serious physical disability. Not only is this guy severely disabled, he's been this way for 38 years. Now, that is longer than the average man lived 
in the time of Jesus. If you were beyond 40 years old, you were considered a senior citizen back then, well and truly in your senior years, above the age of 40. Sorry, Keho. <laughs> so this guy has relied on others to simply move around, even bring him to places like this, for longer than most men of his generation had even lived. For longer than most of us in this room tonight have lived. And Jesus asks him what seems to be, at least at first, a strange question. Have a look in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? An invalid, 38 years, do you want to be healed? Now that might seem strange, but if we have any doctors in the room or doctors in training, I imagine it's maybe not as strange as it is to those who are not medically trained. Maybe you've met some patients in your training or in your work who you know actually deep down they don't want to be restored. In fact, I, I read a, a recently of a beggar in Penang uh, exposed in the papers. He was pretending he couldn't walk. Uh, he was begging in downtown Penang and it was exposed. He had tens of thousands in his bank account and he had a house in his name. He was begging in downtown Penang because he preferred to depend on others rather than actually go and get a job. But not this man. No, this invalid is very desperate to be restored. See in verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. So you see how that fits nicely with this fanciful rumor that we saw something of earlier, about this, this supposedly this angel comes down and stirs the waters, and if, if you're the first one in, you're healed. Not true, but this guy believed it. And maybe he thought this man, Jesus, who has suddenly come up to him, do you want to be healed? Maybe this man would be the one to help him into the pool when the waters were stirred, that he might be healed. He'll be the first one in, and Jesus is going to do it. And yet this desperate man's faith is totally misplaced. He doesn't need to rely on a fanciful rumor about some angel supposedly coming down and stirring the waters. His restoration is right before his eyes. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. John makes it clear, a man who couldn't walk for 38 years without the use of his lower limbs, his legs. And Jesus speaks a word with authority and this same man immediately stands. He picks up the mat that he would have used to lie on day in, day out for 38 years. He picks it up for the first time in 38 years. And then he begins to walk. Now we can hear these miraculous accounts so often that we become too familiar with them. We just let the amazement of what Jesus does here wash over us. He has just spoken a single word. Get up, take up your mat, 
and walk. And yet what he does with that word in authority, he does more than any medical practitioner could possibly do in our day for this man. Giving him the use of his legs again after 38 years. He speaks a word and restoration and life comes in a way that only God the, the very creator who can speak a word and life comes to be, only God can do. And if we miss the significance of what Jesus does here, the sheer amazement, well, we are not the only ones. You see, many in his own day who witnessed this cripple that they would have known walking again, they don't rejoice when they see him walking. They don't cry out with delight. They actually fear and some even loathe Jesus for giving this man the ability to walk again, for restoring him. And so now we come to the deeper reason why John is actually giving us this encounter of desperation. It's to reveal an even greater desperation, that Jesus will be rejected by the very ones he came to restore in a far more significant way. And so we come to a desperate enemy. Come with me to the end of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. No sooner has Jesus healed this lifelong cripple. He's got up and he's walked for the first time in 38 years. And this group of Jews has come along. And what do they do? They interrogate him. They don't marvel. They're not amazed. They don't cry out in delight that Jesus has done what no human physician could even do to this day. There's a walking miracle right in front of their eyes. And what do they care about? The Sabbath. The fact that in their religious eyes, this healed man has taken up his mat on the Sabbath day. And so broken the Sabbath law. And that's what they care about. Now, in case we're not familiar with what they are concerned with here, the Sabbath and the Sabbath law, I'll give you a quick overview. Uh, The Sabbath is most explicitly first mentioned in the Scriptures, uh, and the Sabbath law in particular back in Exodus. Uh, We haven't got to, I don't think we will get to this part in our morning talk tomorrow, but just remember, God's redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt, and he's given them their good law by which they can live with him as their God, as his saved, redeemed, and precious people. And, And that law was summarized in the ten words, the ten commandments. The fourth one being the Sabbath. Rest. That one day in seven, God's people Israel were to rest from all their labors. And that was to reflect God's intention in creation. Just as we're told in Genesis, God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh. And so they are commanded in honor of their redeemer and their true provider. Well, so you, my people Israel, you will rest again on the seventh day as well. Now, the Sabbath command is reaffirmed later in Jeremiah 17.22. So, 
having been incredibly disobedient over the generations, uh, Jeremiah calling the people to repentance because they haven't been honoring God by his law, again he reaffirms, and do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath, or do, not do, or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. So by Jesus' day, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, they took this Sabbath rest very seriously. In fact, they took it far too seriously. You see, nowhere in God's law in the Old Testament are we told that what the cripple does here, taking up his mat and returning home, nowhere is that stated as a labor that would break the Sabbath command. And just think about how stupid this is. These Jewish leaders, they're fine with the idea of other men carrying a man on his mat, this poor cripple, to the pool on the Sabbath day. That's okay. But the minute the cripple is miraculously healed and actually takes up his own mat and then walks home, he's a lawbreaker. Shows how shallow. And hypocritical these lawkeepers really are. But the guy still knows, as he's being interrogated, these guys are the authority, humanly speaking, of his day. And so he fears them, and he tries his best to satisfy their questions. Verse 11. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. This healed man doesn't actually know it's Jesus who healed him. You think he might have been thankful to the point of at least asking for Jesus' name, Jesus had just given him the ability to walk again after 38 years of being a cripple. But the guy doesn't even know that it's Jesus who has healed him. He's just walked off with not as much as a nod to Jesus before he bumped into these Jewish leaders now interrogating him. Well, it's not long before Jesus catches up with him. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So here again, John gives us a pointer to this man's character. We've seen he's not that thankful. And now Jesus says, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing more may happen to you. See, Jesus knows that in the case of this man, it was actually some sinful behavior in his past long in his past, that had actually led to this disability. Sin no more that nothing more worse may happen to you. It was his own sinful behavior. Now, God's word makes clear, suffering is not the automatic consequence of personal sin. So later in John 9, we see that clarified as as Jesus miraculously heals a a blind man. And when those around him ask, oh, was it because he sinned that he was blind? Jesus says straight away, no, it was not because of his sin. It's for a very different reason that that man was blind. But for this cripple here, Jesus is saying he had suffered his disability for some personal sin he had committed in the past. And Jesus therefore warns him, sin no more. 
Yet Jesus, as it were, has saved him from an immediate judgment, an immediate consequence for his sin, so that he might hear Jesus and repent and might no longer walk in those sinful ways, that nothing worse might happen to him. But instead of responding faithfully, instead of hearing Jesus and obeying, what does he do? Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. He goes to Jesus' enemies, the angry Jews that he know that this guy knows are out for Jesus. Rather than sinning no more, what does he do? He betrays the Lord who had restored him for a time. This guy is not a model believer, all right? He's someone who uses Jesus for his own benefit, but then the minute trouble comes along, ditches Jesus and puts the blame on him. Desperate. Far more desperate than he first appeared. Oh, he might enjoy the use of his legs again to the end of his physical life, but in this lack of faith, he is still heading in sin for nothing but the judgment of God. He is still truly a desperate man. Friends, those who experience miraculous healings today, and I believe that that can and does happen, but those who do experience that kind of miraculous, physical restoration, and yet still in the end reject Jesus as their Savior from sin and Lord of life, we must see that those individuals are still in as great a need as they were before they were physically healed. We must see that they are still in as great a need as they were before they were physically healed. Because they are still under the far more serious judgment of God for their sin that will lead to the consequence of eternal separation from him. And from life. We must remember that it is only as the gospel of Christ is preached. And it is only as by God's grace people are brought to repentance and faith in him. That we can truly rejoice with them that they have received the truly essential restoration of their soul. Well this man having betrayed Jesus in this way leads his enemies straight to him. And see how John describes these enemies. Verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus is restoring as only God can do, but in their eyes, Jesus was trouble. A dissenter, failing to uphold their sacred, silly rules about the Sabbath. And so what does Jesus do? What does he do? He gives them an even greater reason to get really mad at him. That's what he does. See verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. 
This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, it's one thing to be a Sabbath breaker on a tiny technicality that doesn't really matter. It's a whole new level what we're seeing here. Jesus is cutting at the core of their religious belief, these Jews. One of the most fundamental tenets of their faith as they understood it, God is one. And now Jesus says, just as my father is working until now, so I am working. Jesus here is claiming to have the same authority over the Sabbath as God. You see, the Jews still taught that God, of course, himself never rested from work in every way. He he rested from his work of creation, yes, but he never rests from his work of sustaining all things. In that sense, God does not observe the Sabbath rest. And now Jesus is saying loud and clear, you know how my father is working right now? You know how God's sustaining everything right now? Well, guess what? So am I. And with that, these Jews get even more desperate. You see, as far as they're concerned, Jesus has breathed his last. He must die. Well, Jesus isn't prepared to die yet under their false charges of blasphemy. Instead, he defends himself against those who would seek to kill him. And in doing so, he shows us how he, and he alone really, is our only hope in our desperation. The only hope for a desperate world. Now, one of my most cherished memories uh, I hold is when my son Josiah was first born just over five years ago. And he had a pretty rough start. He was a premature birth. He came about just over a month early, which meant he spent nearly the first week of his life in the uh, neonatal intensive care unit. He had a major operation on his lungs when he was about three days old. It was a very rough start. And we thank God that he pulled through And soon enough, he was a very active, cheeky baby boy. And we saw straight away that he picked up one of his father's, my, terrible habits. Here is one of the first photos of Josiah. That's right. He is a habitual nose picker. Josiah has seen his daddy picking his nose time and time and time again so that now he can do no different as my son. It's one of the less nicer ways Josiah shows himself to truly be my son. And Jesus says he has that kind of relationship with God as his father. See in verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. The Jews would have been used to this concept in the terms of their own culture, because in Jesus' day, a son normally adopted the trade they saw their father doing. They did what their daddies did for a job, exactly as their daddies did it. 
And these Jews, they want to charge Jesus with blasphemy because they're insisting that Jesus, who they see to be a mere man, is making himself a rival to God. A rival to God. And Jesus says, I'm not a rival to God. I can't do anything but my Father's will as the Son. In fact, that's why I came, says Jesus. Verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Jesus tells these Jews, it's not that I can only do my Father's will, but that's exactly why the Father has sent me. He loves me. He has shown me his work. He has shown me his desire to see all his creation restored from the grip of sin and death and brought back to him. We saw a glimpse of that earlier in Jesus, didn't we? Restoring that lame cripple who had sinned and yet Jesus gives him a restoration in his present back to walking life. And yet Jesus says there are even greater things to come so that these men might marvel. Verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now Jesus again is really pushing things here. The Jews of his day fiercely believed there was only one who had the authority to grant, to give life. To literally raise the dead that they might live. God. God alone. That was their hope. As they had it in their scriptures in the Old Testament. That a final day would come when God would bring about this great resurrection of both salvation and judgment. As we read in Daniel 12 verse 2. This promise. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life. Some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's what God promised to his people. He would raise and he would judge. He would save through his judgment. And now see what Jesus says in verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Jesus is showing these Jews, look, there is a crucial element missing in your understanding. Because in your insistence that God is one, you've neglected other parts of his word to you. Other parts like Psalm 2. As King David shows the stupidity of our world raging against God in sin and thinking we can somehow continue to rule ourselves apart from him and get away with it forever. Well, this is God's plan to put things right as it is from Psalm 2, 7 to 12. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And yes, many would have understood this to be, oh, this is just God's king 
in the line of David, his king for his people. But we see here more than that, a begotten son. And these Jews weren't kissing the son. They weren't honoring God's son. They were trying to kill God's son. Jesus warns them, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. You see, these Jews might claim to be the true servants of God for the people of Jesus' day, the faithful followers of the law, but they're denying the very hope to which that law pointed. The Son, who would bring a real refuge to all who might come and turn to Him before it is too late. And Jesus makes it clear here, it is Him they must turn to. We have these two affirmations that begin with that, basically, I'm now going to say something really important now formula in John. Truly, truly, I say to you. So the first one in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. These men interrogating Jesus are depending not on the Son, they are depending on a shallow obedience to the law. That was their security before God. Despite the history of Israel, their people time and again failing to keep that law in their sin, time and again being punished for their faithlessness, faithlessness, which is just a model of the truly desperate situation we all as sinners are in. (coughs) Who, like them, have failed to love God as we should in so many ways. Have failed to honour and love and worship Him with all that we are as those made for Him above all. And we've all gone astray. We've all gone our own way. And no law will bring freedom for us to know and enjoy God again. We have a sinful nature. Uh, A sinful nature that a law could never change. A sinful nature that simply is literally, as we learn by Paul in Romans, aroused by the law. When the law comes, all it does is to serve and show how sinful we are when with our sinful nature we just keep on breaking the law. And so we can change our own nature no more easily than a dead person can get up and listen to the sermon at their own funeral. We need a rescue. We need to be brought out of the shackles, the desperation of sin, and so be brought back to God. We need a saviour who can do what we never can. And friends, that is how desperate our situation is. That is how desperate our sinful world situation is before God under his judgment and now here Jesus is calling even his enemies believe on my words believe on my words which have the power to restore which have the power to bring life to the lame as only God can hear my words believe the father who sent me and you will have eternal life you will pass from being dead to being alive 
And just in case these guys didn't get it the first time, he says it again, but in a slightly different way. Verse 25, Jesus says again, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus speaks again of this hour to come, which in one sense has already arrived, and the same Son whose words bring life will speak to those who are dead, and when they hear his words, they themselves will come alive. What Jesus shows He has that authority in a way in John 11 when he merely speaks a word, come out, and Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Jesus does that, we're told here, because he shares the same preeminence as God the Father. He shares the same preeminence as God the Father, who is by definition self-existent. That is God And God alone has life in himself. He doesn't depend like us, his creation, on anything or anyone for life. He brings forth life. A mere word bringing all things into existence. And so as the Father has granted the Son who is one with the Father, he has granted that same authority to bring life. Do you see why the doctrine of the Trinity, that God has revealed himself as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, each are fully God, why that is important? Do you see why the doctrine of the very nature of Christ, that Jesus is, as God's Son, both fully God and fully man, why that is so important? These are not merely theological musings for us to just argue about in the early hours in the morning. They are essential foundations for the gospel to be true. You see, if God is not Trinity, as we see here, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, with the distinctions between the Father and the Son, then what Jesus says here is a lie. If Jesus is not both fully man, but also fully God, God the Son, one with the Father, then he has the authority to save not one soul. To not give one who is dead life. If he is not one with the Father. The Trinity, the nature of Christ, fully God, fully man, they matter. Because if we deny them... We undermine the gospel. If they are wrong, if they are false, the gospel is a lie. Now see how Jesus finishes in verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this. 
For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus again alludes to the scriptures that these Jews know only so well. Again, he identifies himself as we saw earlier in John 3 with the Son of Man, Daniel 7. Uh, the one who Daniel sees approaching God as the Ancient of Days and to him is granted all authority to rule and establish God's kingdom over all the nations, to bring God's kingdom again as it should be. And so through this Son of Man, God is going to restore. God is going to bring our world out of the curse of sin and death and put things right. Deal with sin. Deal with death once and for all. Establishing His kingdom forever. That's what the Son of Man would do. As God's servant. And so he is the one who will bring in the final judgment. Before the renewal. He is the one who will speak. And the dead will rise. He is the one who will speak. And those who have done good. Will be saved. Those considered good. Will be raised to eternal life. And those still guilty of evil. Well they will go to everlasting judgment. And these Jews opposing Jesus, again, they think to prepare for that great day, that means depending on our shallow obedience to the law that in our hearts we don't really keep. Their own sense of righteousness before God. That same self-righteous pride that's keeping them from actually receiving the Son. Keeping them from their greatest need to have life in Him. How desperate... What a desperate state they're in. Opposing the Son God gave that we might pass from being dead to having life again. Denying that life begins with knowing Christ. Begins by receiving the Son Christ, God's Saviour and King for us. Oh, much like the desperate man before. Oh, he was healed by Jesus. He was saved from the consequences of his sin for a time. But he failed to still hear the voice of the Son and repent. And instead he betrayed the Lord who sought to save him. How should we respond to this desperation? Well friends, this lie that these enemies of Jesus believe as we see it here. You can please God as you deny and refuse the son he has sent. That lie is alive and well today. I remember sharing the gospel with some friends at university one Friday lunchtime and we uh, met one student and he, thankfully he was open just having a conversation. We'd never met him before and so my friend who um, uh, decided to just sit down next to him started asking him some general questions. Do you believe in God? Yeah, yeah, I do. Okay, good, good. Um, so, uh, do you believe you're going to go to heaven? Yeah, 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 I think I, think I will. Okay, cool. Why do you think you're going to go to heaven? And the guy said, well, I'm an alright guy. You know, I've pay my taxes, not many as a student but I pay my taxes and you know I, I help the old lady over the road, the trash and I, I keep the laws generally and I, I'm, a, I'm a good guy, I'm alright. I think God will let me into his heaven. And so my friend asked an incredibly insightful and wise question back in response. He said, okay, my friend, on the day you die, on the day you get to those pearly gates, 
on what basis is God going to let you into his heaven? Is it going to be on the basis of your terms or his? On what basis is God going to let you into his heaven? Is it going to be on the basis of your terms or his? Jesus says, whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Our only hope is to turn to the Son in whom we can have a full refuge from sin before the day God judges. Life begins with knowing Jesus as the Christ, God's Son, our Saviour and King. And that is not a popular belief outside this room in Malaysia today. We live in a pluralistic society that likes to pretend that every religious view is equally true, equally valid. And I've found that even at times in the Malaysian church, at times, the idea that we as Christians, followers of Christ, and friends from other religions in Malaysia, we worship the same one God? Because we believe that fundamental belief that God is one? We, we both hold to a monotheistic conviction. God is one and there is no other besides him. I hope you can see from these verses tonight that though we as Christians agree with others that God is one, the one God whom we and know and worship in Christ is nothing like their God. Nothing like their God. We believe in the one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, distinct but inseparable, each of whom are fully God. And we dare not say or suggest that a religion that denies that the Son is God, that Jesus is fully God, offers any real hope of salvation and life beyond the grave with God on the basis of what the Son says here tonight. Those who do not honour the Son do not honour the Father. Those who do not depend on God the Son to do that which we could never do in our sin, dealing with it in every way by His authority to give life. While we believe that lie at our peril, we promote that lie and others are lost to God. Others will continue to be sold under sin with no hope of life in His presence again as they continue to deny the Son. If we love Malaysia, which is desperately lost for the most part in this darkness, we will be called to say that which is unpopular. We will seek to urge fellow Malaysians, whoever they might be, to turn to the Son for refuge, to take refuge in Him before the day of judgment. And I know that's going to be hard. And yes, we need to be wise. We need to be sharing the good news of the Son with love and with respect to all our neighbours. And if and when, as we do that rightly and respectfully, we are still opposed for doing so, we must 
prize Christ. We must remember what he speaks to us here. If we have believed on the Son, we have passed from death to life. And as we saw just yesterday, nothing can separate us from the love which is in Christ Jesus. The one in whom alone our eternity is secure. Prize Christ. Keep looking forward to the day that he speaks of here when as we have trusted on him, he will call. And as we hear his voice, so we will rise and enjoy resurrection life with him forevermore where the pain and the suffering and the opposition and the trials will be no more. Friends, we live in a desperate world. And yet God in his grace has done that which we could never do, giving his son that we might find refuge in him. Let us rejoice in that and let us go and speak that word of life to all who would hear, praying that they might indeed believe on the son, that they too might indeed pass from being dead to knowing life with God. Because as we've been seeing throughout these last few days, real life begins with Christ, God's Son, and with Him alone. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that despite what we deserve for the ways in which we have gone astray and denied you as our creator, as our sustainer, and our Lord in our sin, we thank you that you did indeed fulfill your promise and so gave your one and only begotten Son who lived and died that we might be forgiven, that we might have a sure and certain refuge in Him, that we can look forward to that day of judgment without fear, because in Him we are secure. And I pray, Lord, that in response to the awesome love that we've been shown in Him, so would we be compelled to go and tell others that they might take refuge in the Son who can give life before the day of your judgment. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.